Well, brothers and sisters, today we pick up again in our Gospel of Luke, and this time it's right where we left off last week. Last week we stopped at verse 36, and today we pick right back up at verse 37. So I want to remind us, last week one of the key verses was this verse 34. You can look in your Bibles if you want to. There's pew Bibles under your seats. But verse 34 says that people were accusing Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is his reputation up to this point. He has this reputation of hanging out with the wrong crowd, if you will. Well, the very next story that we're going to read today It's a clear example of Jesus living into this reputation. In this story, we will see that Jesus is affirming his reputation that a friend of sinners is exactly who I am. Maybe not the drunkard and the glutton part. He was without sin. But a friend of sinners is exactly who I am. This is exactly what I'm about. This is exactly what I'm for. And as usual, as usually happens with Jesus, the religious leaders are really upset with him in this story that we'll see. And this time it's Simon the Pharisee. So this morning as we read our text from Luke, I invite you to put yourselves in the shoes of our characters. Apart from Jesus, we're going to look at two characters, Simon and the woman at Jesus' feet. So as I read, try to imagine what this woman is feeling what Simon's feeling. Try to remember if there are times in your life when you could have related to how they might be feeling in this situation. Sound good? Okay. Now, when we we read our text, I'm going to have some um, images. Another pastor put together these beautiful slides, cartoon images, to bring the text to life for us. So feel free to follow along on the screen, or if you'd like to close your eyes, if that's how you better follow along, or in your own Bible, whatever is best for you. Before we read, let us pray. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher. In the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our only concern. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which one of them would love more? Simon answered, 
Well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. This is the 50 denarii guy. The 500 denarii guy. So happy. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So before we read this story, I asked you to put yourself in the shoes of our characters, the woman and Simon the Pharisee, to imagine what they were feeling. Now, to help us do that a little more fully now, I want to spend some time unpacking who these characters were, especially in their context, and see how we might relate to them. So first, let's talk about Simon the Pharisee, the one who invites Jesus over for dinner. Now, if you were to give a word for Pharisees today, one word to describe them, what might you say? Anyone? Legalistic. Anyone else? Hypocrite. Self-righteous. Yep. These are the words we automatically tend to think of. Legalistic, self-righteous, hypocrites. We tend to think of the Pharisees as these really mean, exclusive, snooty leaders. And the truth is, some of the Pharisees did act like that, and Jesus calls them on it. He does blatantly call them hypocrites at points. But it's important for us to know that in their time, that's not all that the Pharisees were. That's not all that they were known for. You see, in the first century, the Pharisees were the group of Jews in Judaism who were most like Jesus. The Pharisees, they were centered in Galilee. They were a lay movement. They were Torah observant. They were really concerned about upholding the scriptures. Jesus is much like them. Jesus was closer to them than he was to the other Jewish sects like the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots, which, by the way, were like different Christian denominations. They're all the same faith. They share the same scriptures, but they read it a bit differently, so they live out the faith a little bit differently. But the way they lived it out, Jesus, if you had to compare him to one group, was most like the Pharisees. So the particular group called the Pharisees, they weren't just these evil people like we start to think of them today. One Bible scholar explains it like this. These are the kind of folks you would want on your church council or vision team or leadership group. 
These are the folks who are generally interested in trying to figure out what it means to love God and love neighbor and be salt and light in the world and how to live that out in daily life. So they were really trying hard to be good, faithful people. But there's one thing that they did, a few things that they did, but one in our story we're going to see that really irks Jesus. Somewhere where they really missed the mark. And that is they tried to maintain their religious purity by distancing themselves from sinners. You see, the way that they read the scriptures, they believed that the way to honor God to stay pure was not to associate those whom were labeled sinners. And religious purity back then was especially important around the dinner table. Because in the ancient world, table fellowship was the main marker of community. To have a meal with someone was to say, you belong in my group. Who you ate with indicated who was in your clique. Now we may think this is silly, but we still do it today, right? Middle schoolers, high schoolers, you remember the lunch table saga? Who's going to sit at your table? It kind of determines the social hierarchy, right? Who you sit with is really important. And when we get older, we think we're much more mature, but we do the same thing. Think about when the parents finally invite the boyfriend or the girlfriend over for Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's a big deal. It's saying like, hey, you might be good enough to sneak into our family system. Maybe. It's kind of a test. We still do it today. But back then, it was, it was true, but it wasn't so subtle. It was just blatant. Who you eat with is who you belong with. This is the main cultural marker. And this was really important for the Jewish people because they had all these laws about cleanliness, about purifying yourself before a meal, about eating the pure foods. And so that's why when you read the New Testament, and I hope you are, I hope you're reading along in Luke, you'll see so many times Jesus is eating with people. And what Jesus is doing is he's breaking down barriers. He's showing who belongs in his clique, who has been invited to his middle school lunch table. And it's not just the people you would think. It's everyone, Gentiles and outcasts and sinners of all kinds. These are the people Jesus invites. That, too, is why you, if, when you continue reading the New Testament and the epistles by Paul, you see the early church eating meals together every week. That's what we do in part here, too, at communion. We have a meal together symbolically. Because in those early days, Christians were the only group of people who were crazy enough to all eat together with people of all backgrounds. Rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, were all allowed at the table. No one else did that. That's what made the church so unique. That's why it was so important for them to have meals together. They were regularly expanding the circle of who belongs in God's kingdom. So back to our story. This is the context, the table fellowship, the purity rules, all of this stuff is in play when Simon the Pharisee holds this dinner. Pharisees hadn't yet caught this way of Jesus thinking of expanding table fellowship. So for a Pharisee, meal purity was very important. 
And then into Simon's house comes this woman. A woman who is explained as a woman in the city, a sinner. I like how commentator Joel Green describes this entrance. He says, the woman enters Simon's the woman who enters Simon's house, whose sinful state is evident to all, comes into this scene like an alien, communicable disease. That's really how they would have viewed her as contaminating their whole dinner, their whole purity. Now let's pause for a moment to consider this woman's title. She doesn't even have a name. She's called a woman in the city, a sinner. How would you like to be called that? So-and-so, the sinner. Now, our text doesn't tell us anything about this woman. Uh, Besides this, we don't actually know what her sin was. But I kind of like that, and I wonder if it's intentional, because then all of us can relate to her, right? Because we all have sins. What we do know about this woman is that her reputation precedes her. Her reputation has so much preceded her that she doesn't have a name anymore. She's just a woman, a sinner. I wonder if you know anyone like that. Have you ever been in a conversation and someone just says, oh, that guy, the so-and-so, the drug addict, or that woman, the so-and-so former prisoner, so-and-so enter whatever sin you think is the worst. We've always been really good at labeling people by their sins. So here's this woman, the sinner. Again, we don't know exactly what she's done, but the favorite interpretation over the years is that she is a prostitute. Do we have kids? Sorry. Yes. No, we're good. Okay. So the favorite interpretation is that she's a prostitute. We don't know that for sure, but we're going to run with it because that has been the historic interpretation. And I want to go with that interpretation to kind of unfold the complexity of labels like sinner. So let's look at this, the prostitution in that culture. We're not going to go into a lot of details, don't worry. But I want to show you how complex it was. So back in Jesus' day, women didn't have many options for work. They were pretty much dependent on their father or their husband for money. So if a woman's husband or father dies or abandons her, she's pretty much vulnerable to whatever she can get for work or whoever's going to take care of her. If no one takes care of her, well, she's in a really bad state. Sometimes, too, for poor families, the parents would sell the child into prostitution. They figure better she does this and eat rather than starve at home. For this reason, a lot of prostitutes fit into this category called the poor. Remember, it's Jesus had come to bring good news to the poor. Jesus had come to bring good news to a woman like this. And it's easy for us to say that that complex problem was just back then in the first century. But sadly, as many of you know, it's still at play today. I have seen it firsthand. So 
10 years ago, I studied abroad in Sydney, Australia. I've been reminded because Facebook, you know, brings you all those pictures, you know, of 10 years ago today. And I've been fantasizing about the beaches there as we've had um, Indiana winters. But anyway, that's a digression. When I was in Australia, I was at this small Christian college of ministry in the arts. And we were required to do a service placement in the community every week. My service placement was hanging out with prostitutes. Literally, every Friday night, 5 p.m. to 2 a.m., I hung out with prostitutes. So in Sydney, there's this place called King Street. It's in what's called their red light district. Red light meaning, like, stay away. You don't want to go there. And so it's lined with all sorts of these strip clubs, and about every 10 to 15 feet, there's a prostitute. Men, women, sadly, even children as young as ages 11 and 12. Every weekend, people would come out to King Street, some just to hang out. It was really weird. People would just hang out there. Some came for the services found there. And every Friday night, four of us American students, these 21, 22-year-old naive students, would head off to King Street, but not by ourselves. We went with this guy named Shorty. This is Shorty. Love Shorty. He got, that's not his real name, but he's, he's very short. He's maybe like this tall, so that's where he got his name. So you can see, Shorty is a tattoo, piercing-covered, black leather-wearing, Harley-riding saint of the faith. Seriously, I don't know if I've ever met someone in my life whose whole life was so devoted to Jesus and loving others the way that I read in the Gospels as Shorty. Shorty's background was really rough. He used to live on the streets. He has one of those horrible childhood stories you often hear. But over time, God worked a number of things out, and he got moved into a better life, a better community. Now he's a leader in the Salvation Army of Sydney, and he's devoted his whole life to helping people on King Street, these folks that everyone else has shunned as sinners, these folks that most people only interacted with if they were there for a service. He decided, these are going to be my friends. This is my clique. So every Friday night, Shorty would take the four of us to King Street, and we'd help serve a really nice meal to anyone who wanted to come. Then we'd put on a worship service, and we'd hear testimonies, we'd sing songs. It was really beautiful. I don't have time to tell you all the stories I heard, but I can tell you this. There was something really holy happening there on King Street. The people who came to these meals and services, you could tell how grateful they were to be there, to be accepted, to feel safe and secure. You could tell how much it meant to them to be seen, not just as their label, but as a person. Some of them worshipped their hearts out like I have never seen before. And I was in college, and college students worship like crazy sometimes, right? But these King Street people way outdid them. It was like a revival was happening. But in those places, there was also tremendous sadness and shame. Because no one I met wanted to be there on King Street. Many of their stories, I'm sure, were similar to the stories of prostitutes in the scriptures. Some had grown up in these poor rural towns, and they had been coaxed into the city with a promise of a better life just to get trapped in this system they couldn't escape. 
Many shared a story that went the same way over and over again. A little girl raised in an abusive home. She runs away to get a better life. She seeks love and belonging from people who take advantage of her. She finds herself pregnant and alone as a teenager. She's desperate to provide for her child, to not have her child taken away from her. So she goes searching for the highest paying job she can get as a teenage high school dropout, which leads her to King Street. To everyone else, I didn't realize this was going to hit me so hard even 10 years later. To everyone else, these women had just become known as the prostitutes, the women in the city who were sinners. Because the honest truth is to give that label was so much easier for people than to listen to their stories, to explain everything, the abused child, the neglected little girl, the taken advantage of teenager, the mother trying to provide for her child. That was the whole story. Now, I'm not trying to say that these women were innocent. They were sinners, too, as you and I are. And as the story often goes, the external sins just add up. A lot of times they would take drugs to deal with their lives, and then they would steal to get drugs, and it just keeps going on and on because of their situation. But none of them ever just woke up one day and said, I think I'll be a prostitute. You know, I think I'd like to be a shunned member of society living in the dark corners of the city. And I tell you these stories of King Street to highlight the fact that sin and the labels of sinner are often very complex. And yet we on the outside are so very quick, aren't we, to slap on that name tag, sinner. As we confessed earlier, we have not truly seen the worth of those we label as sinners. I love Jesus' question in verse 44. He says to Simon, Do you see this woman? And I wonder if he's asking, Simon, do you really see her? Not just her label, but her. Do you see this person? And then what Jesus does next is incredible. He says, this woman is the model of discipleship. She is the one who has shown great love. Simon the Pharisee, the one who prided himself on his scripture observance, he in this scenario has completely missed the boat. And Jesus calls him on it. Jesus sees through to Simon's heart, and what Jesus finds there is not purity, but sin. Simon's heart reeks with judgmentalism and inhospitality. Simon thinks he's the righteous one in this scenario, as we saw in that cartoon. He thinks he's wearing the name tag righteous. But based on the state of their hearts, it's in fact Simon who is the one who stands condemned. For the woman in this story knows that she needs forgiveness from Jesus. Whereas Simon doesn't seem to think he does. In gratitude, this woman has poured out everything she has at Jesus' feet 
her most expensive possession, the tears from her eyes, the only thing she has to dry his feet with, her hair, all of this she does in gratitude. Whereas Simon, he doesn't even offer Jesus the basic elements of hospitality. Now, as I've considered this passage, I've often thought back to that semester I spent in Sydney. And I've become increasingly convinced that in my own story, the Pharisee was me. It was me and my fellow Christian students. We were the ones yielding the name tag, God followers. We were the ones who carried around our Bibles and took Bible classes. We were the ones who, from the outside, were pretty squeaky clean. But I have to be honest that when I first met Shorty and I first went to King Street, somewhere within me bubbled up all sorts of judgment and inhospitality. Part of me wanted to run as fast as I could back to my little holy huddle at the Christian college. And I wasn't the only one who felt these feelings. Some of the students' parents called in upset about our service placement with Shorty. They complained that they were expecting their kids to have a nice Christian experience at the Christian college. Well, be careful when you say you want a Christian experience because Jesus is regularly doing some pretty messy things like hanging out with sinners of all kinds. I do want to give a shout out to my mom who was really supportive the whole time, really respectful of what we were doing, which is Really incredible now that I have a daughter of my own. I don't know how she did it, but she did. And the sad truth is that semester, most of us students wouldn't have gone on a Friday night to hang out with people like the heartbroken, shame-covered people on King Street. There was too much fun to be had in a cool place like that. The truth is most of us had a hard time getting up for church on a Sunday morning. We were 21 years old. We didn't really feel like doing that. But then I looked at Shorty. This man whom many judged because of his appearances. Can you click me to the next one? I stopped working up here. There we go. So Shorty, he's this man that a lot of people judged and labeled because of his appearances, because of his past. But it was this man whose entire life overflowed with lavish love of God and others, and not just when it was easy or comfortable, but in some really difficult, complex situations. Watching Shorty, Jesus convicted me that I, like Simon, had many times taken Jesus for granted. Sure, I knew Jesus forgave my sins. I had confessed that. I sang it week in and week out. But did I really, truly recognize the sins lurking in my heart? Did I really, truly recognize how often I judged? How often I failed to offer hospitality? How often I was so caught up in my own life that I was apathetic to the needs of the world's most vulnerable? Those Friday nights on King Street changed my life. God used Shorty to show me the way of discipleship just as I think Jesus used the woman to show Simon the way of discipleship. God used Shorty to show me how to be truly grateful for Christ's forgiveness, how to love lavishly, how to stop labeling and start befriending. Because the truth is we're all in the same boat, aren't we? 
We were all once dead in our sins, but Christ, out of his lavish love, has drenched us with forgiveness, bringing us new life, not because of what we have done, but as a free gift of grace. And once we truly understand that, this incredible drenching of forgiveness, I believe that we, like the woman in the story, might respond by also drenching Jesus' feet. By offering to Jesus our possessions, our love, our lives for his service. And I think that as we do this, as we pour ourselves out, we'll find that God will transform our hearts, purifying us not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And I think that as our hearts are purified, we'll be surprised to find ourselves moving closer to, rather than farther away from, those society labels as sinners. Because remember Christ's reputation, a friend of sinners. If Christ lives in us, then that is exactly who we ought to be too. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your life. We thank you for your forgiveness. None of us deserves it. And so in gratitude, we pour ourselves out to you. We ask you to transform us from the inside out. We ask you to teach us how to love lavishly. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.